It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW, Sitka. Today is Monday, July 3rd, 2023. I'm Andrew Hames, and this is Raven News. The Sitka School Board on Thursday adopted a revised budget for next year that accounts for Governor Dunleavy's surprise veto of education funding earlier this month. To cover a large portion of the loss, the Sitka District will leave one teaching position vacant at Kitgushihin Elementary School. The crowd attending the meeting, however, was more concerned over activities funding. KCAW's Robert Woolsey reports. The governor on June 19th vetoed half of the $175 million in one-time funding the legislature had approved for K-12 schools this spring. The veto translated into a direct loss to the Sitka District of $270,000. As a result, Sitka School District will leave open one full-time teaching position at Kikushihin that has not yet been filled, as well as trim numerous other expenses. Thursday's noon meeting of the school board was expected to be procedural, but many staff and parents turned out to object to a lack of transparency in how the district allocated funds for student activities last year and to urge the district to amend next year's budget to clarify how much money would directly support student activity expenses, primarily travel. They wondered why the $132,000 per year historically appropriated by the Sitka Assembly for this purpose was nowhere to be seen in last year's budget. Superintendent Frank Hauser, on his second-to-last day of work before taking over Juno schools, explained that the Assembly did not make the traditional appropriation for the last school year, but it did for the coming year. Additionally, there was an expected $300,000 headed towards student activities from the Tax on Cannabis Products, also known as Prop 1, along with $244,000 from the district's general fund. In all, based on Hauser's math, $676,000 for student activities next year. Teachers Union President Mike Vieira pushed back, saying Hauser was not telling the full story. The $244,000 coming from the general fund, for instance, was to cover the athletic director's salary along with coaches' salaries, expenses that the district pays routinely for staffing every year, and not what is meant by money intended to support student activities. Vieira argued that the district had also absorbed $500,000 in secure rural schools funding that the Assembly clearly intended to pay for student activity expenses. Again, several parents and staff expressed a lack of trust over the district's ability to account for activity spending. Incoming Interim Superintendent Steve Bradshaw attempted to calm the waters and urge the board to pass the budget revision in order to meet the state's July deadline and the rest would come out in the wash after the district had officially closed the book on the 23 physical year and had a headcount for the 24 school year next October. Board member Tristan Gavon agreed this was a good strategy, and he urged the board to pass the budget revision and then immediately prioritize restoring the teaching position at Kikushihin. He also recommended that the board revisit how it builds budgets when it comes time to look at 2025, and consider approving not just the district's general fund, but also approving all the special funds and accounts that exist outside of that, including student activities. The budget revision passed unanimously. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey.
Every school district in Alaska is making the same hard choices as Sitka in the wake of the governor's veto, except perhaps for Petersburg. That community's school district assumed the worst and built a budget for next year with no additional state funding expected. Erica Clute Painter is the Petersburg superintendent. She says no programs or staff will be cut for the coming year. But Clute Painter says that not knowing the state's contribution from year to year has consequences. Sustainability-wise, you know, this is just not a good way to operate. You can't plan for the future. Clute Painter says that the district prioritizes putting available funds into classrooms as much as possible so the tight budget might not be visible to students and families. Veteran staff wear a lot of hats, she says, sometimes doing multiple people's jobs. When they leave or retire, it often becomes clear just how much they were doing. Clute Painter says those experienced staff members help keep expenses low. But it can come at a cost. I think we're, we're in danger of some burnout um, with staff, with administrative staff, with some of our teaching staff. This year, the Petersburg Borough upped its funding to the school district for the first time in 20 years. The district requested and received $3 million from the borough, an increase of more than $1 million. The increase in local funding makes up for the nearly half a million dollars the district won't be receiving from the state after the vetoes. Petersburg School Board President Sarah Holmgrain expressed frustration with the governor's education veto last week on KFSK's live talk show, Campus Connection. But she said she was relieved by the borough's willingness to increase the amount the district will receive in this year's budget. Thankfully, our local government has stepped up and listened to the community, but also listened to our own school district administrators on what we needed, and they stepped up. Each year, the borough receives roughly half a million dollars from the Secure Rural Schools program, which it puts into a rainy day fund. The federal program subsidizes schools close to national forest land that could have made money through the timber industry. This year, more than $1 million of the borough's contribution comes from that rainy day fund. Climate change is affecting the Gulf of Alaska. But in vast stretches of the ocean, a lack of data makes it hard for researchers to know how important species like salmon are handling that change. Now, two new citizen science programs will shed some light on the topic with a fleet of southeast trollers whose fishing boats will double as research vessels. KTOO's Anna Canny has more. Eric Jordan's life on the ocean began more than 70 years ago, when his parents started taking him out on the family's troller. At 73, Jordan still fishes regularly out of Sitka, but he says a lot has changed in the waters of southeast Alaska. I was out there yesterday and seeing things that are truly dystopic. The lack of birds, the lack of fish in Salisbury Sound. Jordan started his own operation in 1978, trolling for coho and chinook. In those days, he'd catch thousands of fish. But today, the ocean seems less abundant. Those of us who are out there on the water, we are seeing the changes. And I'll tell you, it's pretty spooky. In recent years, most species of Southeast salmon have had record low harvests. 
and the devastation still lingers from a Pacific marine heat wave known as the blob that caused massive die-offs of marine animals. Scientists expect a future with warmer oceans and more marine heat waves that could rock the ocean ecosystem in southeast Alaska. But major data gaps make it hard for them to determine how changing conditions might threaten the health of important species like salmon. With two new citizen science programs from Alaska Sea Grant and the Alaska Troller Association, scientists will get a hand from some people who know the salmon best, Southeast Alaska's troll fishing fleet. The first project will outfit boats with sensors to measure temperature and salinity. Tyler Heinen is an oceanographer at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. He says those two measurements are the heartbeat of the ocean. Figuring out how temperature and salinity change over time and space gives you some clues on how the water is circulating around southeast Alaska. Knowing how the water circulates gives scientists a better idea of how food is circulating, too. For instance, mixing ocean water triggers phytoplankton blooms. Which, of course, is the base of the food chain and sets off the production for all the higher trophic levels and fishing and all the things that we love. Fishermen will take measurements at different depths along their fishing routes. And over time, the data will form a baseline. That will help researchers to determine what's normal and what might be linked to climate change. And for fishermen like Jim Moore, that data could add important context to decades of observations out on the water. People talk about, oh my goodness, I've never seen that before. Well, I've been fishing 53 Years, I saw that back in 1979. I saw it again in 1983. And, you know, the long-term data set is, is what's really valuable. Back in the 70s, he participated in a logbook program where fishermen studied salmon populations in the Gulf of Alaska. This spring, Moore and a select group of fishermen have relaunched the program electronically. They'll record things like the species and number of salmon they're catching, where they catch them, the size of the fish, and their stomach contents. Fishermen are natural scientists, and the trust built between management and science and, and the fishermen, I think, is, is a good thing, because we're all working on it together. Back in Sitka, Eric Jordan will be testing out the logbook program on his boat this summer. And he says, for fishermen, collaborating with scientists is a long game. Trollers have a long history of standing up for salmon, and we are going to do that. Through these citizen science programs, Southeast troll fishermen can further solidify their role as environmental stewards. In Juneau, I'm Anna Canny. I'm Andrew Hames, and this has been Raven News. 